Today's sermon text is widely regarded as one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the entire Bible. For this reason, we have divided 1 Corinthians 11 into two sections instead of attempting to cover the entire chapter in one message. To help you understand what I mean by saying that today's passage is particularly difficult, it's like this. In a normal difficult text, if you have a hundred biblical scholars, you may have a hundred different opinions about what it means. But today's text, if you had a hundred scholars, you may have 200 different opinions about what it means. If you were to ask them, Professor so-and-so, do you agree with the commentary that you wrote 10 years ago? He's just as likely to say, well, actually, no, I've changed my mind, and I have written three other books on the subject presenting each of the other views, and I'm really not quite sure what it means. That's the type of text we're in today. Now, before you take this to mean that today's passage is hopelessly obtuse or hopelessly confusing and has nothing helpful to teach us, and before you begin to think that we cannot possibly come to understand it since these other men have PhDs in Greek and have been studying Greek for 60 years and still emphatically, confidently contradict each other, let us be hopeful that the God who inspired this passage will help us by his spirit to learn something, even if we do not untie every tricky knot. I do believe there are quite clear, plain things for us to learn and to receive from this passage today. And then there are also things that I don't understand and the commentaries which I have read do not understand either, even though they might say that they do. Those who come to this passage or come away from this passage with a very confident, very dogmatic opinion of it, I think, are overconfident in themselves. So, with that being said, I just want you to understand there is a great deal about today's message that I am in need of the Lord's help with. Verse 2, the beginning of our text, Paul says, I praise you, brothers, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to, do, to you. In typical Pauline fashion, he looks for things to encourage them about. He looks for words of affirmation to bless them with. Sometimes he's a bit creative. Sometimes he is a bit over the top. He is, he's looking for ways to affirm them and bless them and encourage them. And so that's what he does right here in verse 2. I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. This might be a little confusing for us because we who have been here for the last 10 chapters know that there's actually quite a few things that they have not kept. Quite a few things that Paul told them it's like this or that, and they went astray in various ways. So you have that situation, but then you also have Paul saying, hey guys, I just want to encourage you that you've remembered my instruction. Now, is Paul being a little bit sarcastic? I don't know. I, I, it's difficult to see. Probably not. Is he encouraging them or praising them the way a parent would praise a toddler? 
for emptying the dishwasher, but they only managed to get three of the 15 pieces of silverware into the drawer and all the rest fell on the floor. And the parent says, hey, I just want to tell you, good job. Keep it up. I'm proud of you. You're trying. And the child thinks he's doing quite well. It it might be something like that. I'm not sure. Nevertheless, what is clear is that Paul is praising them. He's saying, I praise you, brethren. But that's not all. He also starts verse 3 with the word but. But I want you to know. So he's saying on the one hand, guys, you're doing great. Keep it up. But I also have some things for you to straighten out. I think there's a lesson there for us, whether it be in uh, parenting or relationships or local church or any sort of sphere. If you're an employer, an employee, or uh, just in your ordinary relationships, looking for ways to encourage people, even if you also have a word of correction. If there's something that they're doing wrong, but also look for something to affirm in them. Look for something to say, hey, I appreciate that you're doing that. And try to be genuine about it. Don't lie to them. Don't manipulate them. Don't praise them for something that's not true. But find a way to give a word of encouragement because that spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Now, verse 3 says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. It is obvious to us that the reason he is saying that is because this is something they need to understand and they need to uh, get through their thick skulls because they're not functioning this way. They need to reorient certain things to align with this instruction from verse 3. Verse 3 presents something like a syllogism for us. And this has been turned into an image that has been widely spread around social media and it looks something like this. We have this, these umbrellas. Now, the umbrella imagery comes from a different author, which is a whole different can of worms. And if you know what that source is, don't worry about that. If you know what I'm talking about right now, you also know what I think about that. That's not the point. The umbrella is not the point. The point is the order, the sequence. You could replace the umbrellas with boxes or lines or blocks or bullet points. But what he's telling them is, God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of the husband, husband is the head of the wife. You might say, oh, but it says the head of every man, and the man is the head of woman, so doesn't that mean that men are in charge of women regardless of what is going on, regardless of social situation? Therefore, women cannot, should not be a traffic cop, and if you're a man and there's a woman standing in the middle of a female traffic cop standing in the intersection directing traffic, you can't listen to her because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11.3 that man is head of woman, therefore I would be breaking this sequence because it says God, Christ, man, woman, man, woman, and I can't submit to the authority of a woman telling me go or don't go. If you think I'm making this up, I'm not. This is a real way of thinking, and you can read articles on it from very, very prominent ministries, largely based in the Midwest. 
I do not believe that is correct. I do not believe that that um, is accurate. If it was accurate, then what the little kids might say on a playground is true, where the three-year-old boy says to the five-year-old girl, you can't tell me what to do because you're a girl. And that just simply is not biblical. When our text says that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and so on, it's using man and woman in the same kind of way that Genesis speaks of man and woman in that husband and wife way. A woman does not have to obey or submit to a man simply because he's a man. If a man in the church says, do this or do that, but he's not actually an authority figure over you, you don't have to listen to him. Now, he can make a request. He can say, would you mind vacuuming the carpet? Because we have to vacuum every Sunday, and I need someone to vacuum. Or in the case of our church, Alex Waddell is in charge of organizing the vacuuming list. It's not because he's a man, and we don't make people vacuum because of their gender. Nevertheless, Paul is quite clear that God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of husband, husband is the head of wife. Now, we need to first deal with the theology of what is being taught here by talking about what is not being taught. This text is not teaching a doctrine which is known widely as the eternal subordination of the Son, abbreviated ESS, even though this is the classic proof text to support teaching ESS. Other words for ESS are EFS, E-R-A-S, and there's probably going to be a new word coined this year to try to rebrand it as, as a thing. ESS is eternal subordination of the sun. EFS is eternal functional subordination because what happened was in 2015, a number of theologians had been pushing this view ESS, um, particularly coming out of Southern Seminary. Southern is the school that I did my MDiv at. So there were men like Bruce Ware and his son-in-law, Owen Strand, who were popularizing and pushing this view. Wayne Grudem, John Piper also. And um, then the confessional people started saying, wait a second, this contradicts Nicaea, it contradicts the Athanasian Creed, it contradicts your confession, the 16, or you don't have this, you're not confessional, but it contradicts the popular confession, it contradicts the Westminster Confession, it contradicts every confession ever written because it contradicts Trinitarianism because it's heresy. And so there was this, this explosive blow up in like June of 2015 on the campus of Southern Seminary and God in his strange providence had me on the campus of Southern Seminary in 2015 taking summer classes. So I'm there in the classroom and my professor, um, Dr. I can't think of his name right now, um, he did his PhD under Bruce Ware who is the grandfather of this movement and he's breaking it down for us and explaining what Dr. Ware actually means and that he's actually not a heretic. And the problem was he didn't include these certain things when he published his book teaching this doctrine. Nevertheless, the publisher pulled the book because it contains heresy. So what happened was they, instead of repenting and changing their teaching, they dug in their heels and rebranded it from eternal subordination of the sun. Because if you look up the word subordination, it actually means less than. 
And if the son is eternally less than the father, then you have this break in the Trinity and the fact that Nicaea says, very God of very God. Jesus cannot be very God of very God if he's less than the father. So then that brings in tritheism. Father God, lesser God, like the boss God and the subordinate God, like that, it's, it's wildly problematic. So then they said, okay, it's not eternal subordination of the son, it is eternal functional subordination of the son. He's not actually subordinate, he just acts subordinate, but he acts subordinate eternally. And the same Presbyterians who said, whoa, that's still heresy, Patrick, they were saying, no, that's still a problem because you still have the word E, you still have the eternal there at the front. That's your problem. And uh, again, instead of repenting and saying, as Pat Abendroth says, I was wrong, instead of saying that, they're like, no, 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 you're just misunderstanding me. What we mean is, by the way, if your job is to be a professional communicator and people are misunderstanding you, the problem is you. And that's preachers, pastors, theologians, teachers, public figures. Your job is to communicate. And if you can't communicate clearly, especially in a, I don't know, 100, 200, 500,000 page book, or hour upon hour upon hour of speeches, sermons, and lectures, if you are being misunderstood constantly, the problem is you. Um, So instead, they went back to the drawing board and came up with ERAS, which for the baseball fans is actually not ERAs, earned run averages, though I wish it was. In fact, it is eternal relation of authority and submission. The problem is we still have the E there at the beginning, which this whole thing is a giant exercise in missing the point. The problem is to say that the Father and Son eternally were not in complete harmony with one will, but in fact had different wills, and so the the Son eternally submitted to the Father. It, It does horrible things to your Trinitarianism. But what they do is continuously quote this verse ad nauseum. This text does not teach ESS, no matter how many times you want to read it. No matter if at first glance it may appear that it teaches eternal subordination of the Son. If you're sitting there and you're a little confused, because you you do know sort of what I'm talking about, but you're like, Andy, it says, God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of the husband. Husband is the head of the wife. How are you going to walk your way out of that? Well, notice what it says and doesn't say. It says, God is the head of what? Christ. Let's say that a little more confidently. God is the head of? Okay. What does it not say? God is the head of? Well, it doesn't say a lot of things. But what's another name that could be inserted instead of the word Christ? Jesus. Um, Yahweh, the Lord. But instead it uses the word Christ which 
you who know some things know that the word Christ is a synonym for the word Messiah, which is the word anointed one, which is a unique term. It's a particular word, a particular term, and it's not just Jesus' last name. In fact, it is not his last name at all. The text does not say the Father is the head of the Son, or God the Father is the head of Jesus, or God is the head of the Logos, the eternal Logos, the eternal Word. It doesn't say that. But what it says is God is the head of Christ. The term Christ is specific to the incarnation. Jesus was not the Christ before he was anointed. Jesus became the Christ. Hence him fulfilling all the prophecies. You know, the entire left half of the Bible. All the stuff, prophet, priest, king, lamb, uh, atonement, the true Israel, seed of the woman, descendant of David, all of these prophecies fulfilled in Jesus, that's what makes him the Christ. And when he is anointed, when the Spirit comes upon him, that's some of the meaning there. The term Christ is specific to the incarnation and refers to the Messiah. The Messiah is a title. the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who would fulfill all of these prophecies, who would, come, who would come into the world, who would live, die, and rise again for our sins to reverse the curse, to break, uh, to, to break the captivity and destruction that has come upon all of the world, to undo everything that Adam did wrong. That's what Jesus is doing, and that's what the Christ is. The Messiah is Jesus in his incarnation, in his humility, in his humiliation. This is what Jesus is referencing when he says things like, my father is greater than I. He is not referring to ontology. Ontology is the nature of being, the nature of a thing. The ontology of this pulpit is wood. The essence of Jesus is not less than the Father. It is equal to the Father. The substance of Jesus is very God of very God. The substance of this pulpit is wood. It is wood through and through. Sure, you might find some nails in there and you see some lacquer and glue and things like that. But if, if you t take a drill and you drill down into it, what you see an inch down is more wood. When you look into Jesus, what you see is God. Now, that does not mean that in his incarnation, he did not add to his deity humanity. He maintains his full deity, but he adds to it humanity. And so he is truly God and truly man, both at the same time, in his humanity, in his incarnation, but then he retains that and keeps that forever. And he has that even today, seated at the right hand of the throne of God as the God-man. He retains that body. He takes on a body in his incarnation and he keeps it forever. 
he's the only one in heaven that has scars. So this, God being the head of Christ, God being the head of the Messiah, this is what is being referenced when Jesus says, my father is greater than I, or I have come to do your will, O God. These are not statements of ontology. These are not statements of eternal function or eternal relations, but they are specifically referring to things taking place within creation as part of the Trinity's plan, which they were in full agreement and full accord with. With, And these things would take place in space and time after the incarnation, after Jesus becomes the Christ, becoming the anointed one, the Messiah. So take a step back, look at the verse, think of it this way. Not simply God is the head of Christ, but think of it like this. Yahweh is the head of Christ. Yahweh is the head of Messiah. Got it? Glad we got that cleared up without sliding off into heresy. Now, regarding the more controversial part, man being the head of woman. This is specifically a reference to husband and wife. For this, you can look in a couple places, namely Adam and Eve in Genesis, and then Adam described in Romans 5. What we understand from these two texts, which we're not turning to right now, but you can write them down and look them up later if you want, We understand from these texts that Adam was formed first and created by design to be the head of the marriage relationship. Further, Adam was particularly the head of not just the marriage relationship, but the human race. Now, regarding that marriage relationship where the husband is to be the head, most men today are soft or relatively soft compared to previous generations. This is not just an Andyism. This is not something that I'm uniquely observing. Men's testosterone levels have dropped somewhere between 25 and 50% over the last 40 years. There's a study on this which says it's 22%, and another study says in a different span of 20 years than it was 28% or something like that. And, and then the fact checkers at Snopes.com say, no, it's not. It's not actually that because these studies might have had overlap between them and whatever. It's like, okay, so it's either 20% or possibly up to 48%. Regardless, it's dropped significantly. So while men have become softer, women have become harder and more aggressive. The feminist movement has been a critical driver of that side of the equation. What this means is that men are both becoming more passive and women are becoming more aggressive at the same time. So it's like these two columns, one is going down and the other is going up. Now certainly, there are men out there who are domineering jerks. Yes, they do exist. But in today's climate, this is becoming increasingly unusual. As women's crime rates and incarceration rates and acts of violence are skyrocketing, by the way, if you want an eye-opening experience, so our church, PBC, we meet here. Our former church was called NCC. We met in a gym down on the Lower East Side. That gym which we rented was a 
fitness studio that was kind of mocked up on the theme of um, inmates. So it's called Con Body. Inside of there, their, their, their shtick is that they only hire ex-cons or formerly, formerly incarcerated individuals. And um, individuals currently experiencing incarceration. Um, so in, that, in the lobby there, they have all kinds of stuff written on the walls and, and statistics and all of this. And one that's right above the water fountain that always just made me ask questions like, what's up with this? Is this, this um, chart of women's incarceration rates, like the percentage. And for forever, it was like zero. Like just women don't get arrested. And then in like the 1970s or something, it started ticking up. And then it kept going and going and going and going and going. And then just this skyrocketing rate. So back to the notes. As women's crime, incarceration rates, and acts of violence are skyrocketing and men's rates of homosexuality are exploding, the world is seemingly turning upside down. Dr. David Edgington of Compassionate Counselors says that 87% of the couples that he sees for counseling for domestic abuse are there because the woman is the aggressor or abuser. He tried to write a book on this and have it published and not a single publisher would take it because this is the topic which must not be touched. Regarding rates of homosexuality, according to Gallup, 1.7% of those born before 1946 identified as LGBT+. 2.7% of baby boomers identified that way. 3.3% of Gen X identified that way. So for three generations, it was 1.7, 2.7, and then 3.3%. Then it tri triples to quadruples. It leaps up to 11.2% in millennials. So that's my generation. And then it goes from 11.2% in millennials to a whopping 19.7%. Nearly one in five of Gen Z identifies as LGBT+. Like these percentages, you, you pretend like there's 100 people in this room. There's not. There's like 75. But if there were 100 people in this room and they were all, uh, what? The greatest generation, the 1946 and prior. Those people, there would be 1.7 people in this room who at some point identified as homosexual. Now, if you slide that forward, replace all of the 100 people with um, baby boomers, people my parents' age, there would be 2.7. So double, but not like a huge number larger. So there would be less than three. And then Gen X, so the people who are like 45 years old, there would be 3.3 in a crowd of 100. But then you fill it up with 30-year-olds, and now there's 11.2 individuals, and then you slide it forward to these Gen Z people, and it's nearly one in five. So 20 people. Why is this? I don't think there's a clear answer. Is it something in the water? 
Certainly possible. Does it have to do with all of the crazy chemicals and unknown substances that we're injecting into ourselves and our children at rates that were unheard of until very recently? It's certainly possible. Similar to like autism rates and whatnot. We're like, oh, where did that come from? I have no idea. Um, For those who are tracking at home, what's happening in mass, in large numbers in this present generation of people, this present generation is made up of and increasingly made up of soft, compliant men and, at the same time, hard, aggressive women who want men to be even more compliant. So, to make that happen, they accuse the men of being too aggressive and accuse them of mistreatment in staggering numbers to further subject men to themselves. And the name for this is... No, the name for this is feminism. (laughs) Feminists use the word toxic masculinity to make this happen. Sorry, I should have rephrased that to make it clearer. Yeah, I'm sorry. But we cleared it up so that there's no... uh, So as a result, countless, and I mean countless, disillusioned young men are turning to what we call the manosphere, or the intellectual dark web, or Jordan Peterson, or Joe Rogan, or whoever else. On a more extreme note, they turn to Islam, or pseudo-Islam, with influencers such as Andrew Tate. Andrew Tate is not a Muslim, okay? Just to be clear, the man is not a Muslim. If he was truly a Muslim, he would be executed for his actions because actual Islam does not stand for the stuff that he stands for. Nevertheless, 15-year-old boys on, out there with smartphones, they don't know and they don't care. What they care is the fact that there is this seemingly masculine, seemingly manly man who is saying things confidently and not apologizing for it. And so they're compelled by that. They're drawn in by that, by that assertiveness. I believe that this is happening, and I think that y'all can see it as well. And if you don't see it, and you're sitting there with your arms folded across your chest, and you're super annoyed with me, and you don't think this is so, just ask someone sitting next to you, because they all seem to get it. So I say all of that, but now I'm going to say, nevertheless, God's word actually has a better plan for us, which we read in various places in the scripture, and it is referenced right here. It's not unpacked in any sort of detail, but it's just referenced, and that is that Christ is the head of man. So man is under authority. Every husband is under authority. It's not the wife's job to subjugate her husband to herself and to coerce him or manipulate him or force him to do the things that she wants him to do. Rather, it is Christ as head of the husband who is in charge. Again, it's not unpacked in detail. It's just referenced right here. But the creation order is that husbands would be the head of their wives. Husbands are under the authority of Christ. Their job is to obey Jesus, to obey obey our Lord. 
And this, any of the stuff I've just said, uh, might not be popular or might be popular. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But I'm telling you, this stuff is clear from our text. The umbrella image. Clear from our text. There are lots of things in our text that are unclear. Lots of things that are confusing or tricky or uh, uh, not easy to figure out. If the rest of our passage were as clear as these first few few verses, it would make my job much easier. Nevertheless, let's move on. Verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. I'm just going to read down to verse 16. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved. Let her be covered. For man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. Judge among yourselves, Is it proper for a woman to pray before God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, verse 4. I'm not entirely sure what's going on here. Other than that the Greeks allegedly did not wear any sort of hat or head covering when they were praying, but the Jewish man typically would in the same type of way they do today, wearing a prayer shawl or a um, yarmulke. Some scholars believe that verse set, when verse 4 says, dishonors his head, it may actually be speaking of Christ. Every man praying or prophesying with his head covered dishonors Christ. It, it might be, I don't know. Here's how one commentator describes this verse 4. Quote, the order of creation has consequences for worship, but Paul's precise meaning is not easy to see. Uh, NIV, as many translators see the unusual Greek to mean with his head covered, what Paul says is having down from his head. Instead of having his head covered, it having something coming down from his head. This is part of where the reference for men having long hair comes from. And not a few, in other words, many, argue that this means a man having long hair hanging down from his head is dishonoring his head or dishonoring Christ. J. Murphy O'Connor favors a reference to long hair, more precisely an unmasculine hairdo with a possible reference to homosexuality. So if you wonder why that whole like, side thing I was just talking about about homosexuality, like how that ties in, well, I think it ties in very closely to what is happening in our text Um, scholar, theologian, Andy Nacelli puts it like this. I'll just read his entire comments on this whole thing. It's like one page. Here is Paul's main argument. When praying or prophesying in a church meeting, men who cover their heads dishonor Christ and wives who uncover their heads dishonor their husbands. Paul supports this argument with at least six reasons. Number one, the husband-wife relationship should reflect the God-Christ relationship with reference to authority and submission. Number two, a wife's uncovering her head is culturally shameful. Number three, a man covering his head instead of a wife's covering her head contradicts how God created, uh, God the creator designed men and women. Number four, it is bad testimony to angels or messengers, uh, qualified by 
verses 3 to 10. Men and women are independent, or interdependent, sorry, 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12. Number five, it is culturally improper. Number six, it goes against what Paul and the other churches practiced. What did covering your head communicate in the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's day? I think Bruce Winter's scholarship is most helpful for answering that question. Here's the gist of what Winter argues. Number one, priests who were Roman men with high social status pulled their togas over their head when they led pagan religious ceremonies by praying or sacrificing. So Christian men in Corinth must not adopt this syncretistic custom. So imagine me unbuttoning my jacket right now and pulling my jacket up over my head in some kind of way. Like imagine a priest who does that and that's the way that the Roman priests would. Number two, a woman's covering her head for example, with a thin head, headscarf, socially indicated that she was married. It symbolized her modesty and chastity and submission to her husband. A wife who refused to cover her head publicly disgraced her husband, basically saying, no, I'm not married. I'm still available. Let's, let's go out. Number three, a new kind of rebellious wife was emerging at this time in the Roman world. She rebelled by being sexually promiscuous, which in that culture was acceptable for men, but not for women. And she might indicate that by removing her veil. Close quote. So that is Andy Nacelli's summary of other people's long, like I'm talking 300 page exposition of this. And just for your information, I have read so many pages on this in the last couple of days that it made my brain start to melt and my eyes blur together and really start to feel like I just don't even want to talk about this tomorrow because I have no idea what's going on here and I don't know what it really means because every commentator contradicts the next and they are all so dogmatic about it. But nevertheless, here we are. So I thought, well, I'll just drop in these quotes from him and then we'll freestyle it and see what happens. Verse 5 and 6, again, I'm not certain what is going on here, but for some commentators, they believe that this head covering was similar to the concept of a wedding ring, and it showed that a woman was married and in submission to her husband by wearing this head covering. It was a visible way to show honor to him. This interpretation is possible, and it makes as much sense as any, as any view. I have no issue with this view. Whatever the meaning, the original audience would have understood it. Why? Because Paul was a good communicator, and he was communicating to them as his primary audience. They were not separated by 2,000 years of changing cultures and customs and language and distance and all of these things. Verse 6 seemingly collides with verse 15 in a way that is difficult to reconcile. I'm not saying that there's a contradiction, but I am saying I do not understand. Verse 6 says, if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn, but it if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Verse 15 says, If a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Verse 15 seems to be quite clear, but verse 6 just raises more questions. How do these things work together? I'm not certain. Verse 15 makes it clear that a woman's long hair is a head covering. And its close proximity to verse 13 would lead one to conclude that the head covering needed for women to be in accord with this instruction is long hair. Now, some, many scholars make a strong 
cultural argument from this. They say, well, there were these unique things going on in Corinth, and it was it had to do with um, cultural practices at the time. And if women wore the hair a certain way, it indicated certain things about them. And if they did other things, then that indicated the opposite. I, th- th- again, that makes about as much sense to me as, as any, and I don't find the argument against it compelling, no matter how confidently scholars will say, no, these were not cultural, these were timeless. I'm, I just don't see that. So as far as cultural things go, what I would suggest is going on here, as far as application would go, point one, dress in culturally appropriate ways when the church gathers for worship. This does not mean that you always have to dress everywhere the way you would dress at church. No, that is a illogical, incoherent thing to say. But nevertheless, when you are coming to church, you should dress in a way that is appropriate for church in the same way that you should dress in a way that's appropriate for work at work and the baseball game at the baseball game. Dress in a way that is appropriate for where you are. Um, In one of these many articles that I referenced and footnoted here, um, they gave some examples of wearing things that are not appropriate in church. And um, some of them were funny and some of them were kind of awkward. But think with me. Many of you have heard me reference what I call hooker heels. A Christian woman should not wear the type of heels that one would expect of a prostitute. You know, they have a platform on the front that's this high, and on the back it's this high plus this. Just a picture of the, uh, the, what's the word? This the silhouette of these two shoes on a screen, on a a sign, indicates that this is a, a brothel. And there are, unfortunately, Christian women on the planet who are like, oh, no, I, I can wear these shoes if I want to because I like fashion. I like style. And everybody else in the room is looking at them and like, oh. I've seen those in like movies and street corners and stuff. It is not appropriate. It is not appropriate for a Christian woman at all, much less a married Christian woman, to be dressing in this way. There are countless other Examples that could be given. But I think this is a reasonable application. A second one, and these, these three are the applications from Andy Nacelli's. Uh, recognize, number two, that God has designed men and women to relate to each other in different ways. Men and women are not the same. They're equal before God, but they're not the same. They're not interchangeable. Show that God's design, number three, number three, show that God's design for husbands and wives is beautiful. So my own applications that I've inserted here, men should have distinctly masculine hairstyles. One of the things that is very plain from the text is it says nature itself teaches you that it is shameful for a man to have long hair. So I would encourage you to take a lesson from the LGBT community that hair is perhaps the most visible way to make a statement about your masculinity, femininity, and sexuality. If you do not believe me, I have an image to help you. 
These are two males. But what do they do when they say, hey, I want to be gay, be a woman, be not heteronormative? I decided to avoid stepping on a giant landmine by not posting pictures of uh, lesbian haircuts. But nevertheless, I believe that women should not have lesbian haircuts. And if you don't know what that looks like, just ask someone who's under the age of 20, and they will tell you what a lesbian haircut looks like. It looks kind of like my hair. Just, it's, a, it's a short man's haircut, or a tall man's haircut. It's a man's haircut. <laughs> You can go to the next slide just so we're not continuously distracted by this. There. Thank you. Um, Women, I believe, should have distinctly feminine hairstyles. This does not mean you all have to look the same. Also, I understand that at different ages and different stages of life and different health conditions, that if you cannot or do not have a feminine hairstyle due to illness or hair falling out or thinning or all sorts of problems that we don't need you to explain to us, I believe it would be reasonable or logical if you're trapped in some kind of a non-feminine hairstyle to wear some kind of a head covering to show that you are not, in fact, a raging feminist, to show that you are not a lesbian, and to show that you are not attempting to be trans. I believe that these are logical, obvious applications. Now, you're sitting there saying, well, Andy... I was with you until this point, but now I just find this extremely upsetting. And now I want to start talking to you about rulers and inches and length. How long is long? How short is short? I would encourage you not to ask me that question. And I would encourage you not to ask me that question in front of others. Or don't ask me that question if you don't want me to give you a fairly blunt and direct answer. Because it's very difficult for me to lie to you. I also think that people who have, no pun intended, but they have a bee in their bonnet about this, they have that because they, they already know. They already have this idea in their mind that, yeah, there's such thing as a masculine hairstyle and a, that men shouldn't have... Dylan Mulvaney haircut or Scott Pressler, that that is shameful and that that's obvious to the entire world, including both the Christian world and the non-Christian world, the straight community and the gay community, that there are certain things that are taught and, and proclaimed by this billboard that is your head. And the Christian community, the local church, should be different from the world. Now, let me just look back through these verses and see if there's anything else. Oh, verse 11 and 12. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. I think that this verse um, helps to fortify against some of the uh, extremes or some of the excesses of those things I referenced about the manosphere. 
about men who have this this um, fake macho type attitude they actually don't have any real skills they don't have any real accomplishments so, so they just try to create fake images for social media to gain clout and then from that to market it in order to build something out of nothing and they're making all this money largely on abusing women talking trash about women making it sound as if women are, are just objects I think that verses 11 and 12 stand against that. That men need women and women need men and that men come from women and that, like, remember your mom who you would not be here without and that you need to be respectful, young man. Be respectful of women. Be a protector and guardian of women not one who roughhouses with them or treats them like one of the guys, but cares for them, as the Bible says, younger women as sisters, older women as mothers. Let's talk about angels for a second. Uh, where are we? Verse 10, the end of verse 10. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Um, what does this mean? Um, again, if, if you have 100 scholars, you might have 500 answers. This is just a very unclear thing. Some, some have the idea that because the word angels in Greek is angelos, which means messenger, uh, in the book of Revelation, it talks about the angels of the churches, and those are the pastors, the messengers of the churches, then this must be talking about women need to wear a certain kind of thing on their head because of their pastors. Don't think that that's what it's talking about. I don't think that that is a strong argument. I don't think it makes sense on a lot of different levels. I think that it is actually talking about angels, like spirit beings that we don't typically see. Now, is it talking about fallen angels or holy angels? Is this a reference to Genesis 6? Is this a reference to those Nephilim, those, those fallen angels, the, the demons that came into the world and had intercourse with women and cr- created these giants that roamed the earth and then God says, I'm actually going to flood the whole earth because the wickedness of man is great. And then he annihilates the whole thing, but then Genesis 6 tells us in the chapter that these giants still existed after the flood, after God wiped out all of humanity. And then you're like, how does that work? And we don't know how that works other than that they could swim. I don't know. Um, So is this a reference to that? Is that saying, hey, there are these holy angels and we don't want... We don't want any more of them to fall because there have been these three great rebellions. There was the fall of Lucifer. There was... um, the Tower of Babel, um, and then I think something related to Abraham. It slips my mind right now. But anyway, we don't want to have a fourth. We don't want to continue to have these spiritually cataclysmic events taking place in the unseen realm. Well, that is true. We don't want that. We'd like to avoid that if at all possible. 
But a less dramatic interpretation would be that these angels are just, you know, angels, good angels that are observing the church. So think with me about uh, 1 Peter, which says that um, angels long to look into these things, the mysteries of the gospel. The angels don't understand the gospel. Why? Because they weren't redeemed. There's no redemption for them. They don't get Christ. It's a mystery to them. They can see it, but they can't experience it. So in the same way that you could talk about those peanut butter cookies that you ate, you ate them and you know what it's like. The person who is only hearing you, they don't really know what it's like. And so in that way, the angels, like, sure, they saw Jesus die on the cross. They saw him rise from the dead. They were there at the tomb, but they haven't experienced the new birth. And so there is this wonder and mystery of the gospel that they are looking on at the church. This is all in First Peter, I think, chapter 1. They're looking on this. They're looking on the church with this profound wonder and amazement that all this is taking place in a group like this. How can that be? And so there are very real angels observing, even in our local church today. There, there's spiritual beings watching what's happening in this room. And on that basis, men and women should conduct themselves and present themselves in ways that align with who God has made them to be. Male and female. Male or female. One or the other. And that women should not attempt to present themselves as feminists or lesbians or trans any more than men should attempt to present themselves as feminists (laughs) or homosexuals or trans because these things contradict God's prescribed way which he's made very clear to us because one of the challenges of interpretation is to or the methods of interpretation is to take interpret the unclear in light of the clear This head covering thing, I think this is the only text in our Bible that talks about it, but the Bible talks a lot about male-female relations. It talks a lot about the order of creation and the marriage relationship. It talks a lot about sexuality. It talks about God's design for each of these things. So I believe that that is the most helpful and useful application that I can bring to you today on this most difficult text in the Bible. So let's pray, and we'll sing our final two songs. Father, we pray that you would help us, that we would bring honor to you and to your good design, even in our way of presenting ourselves and our decorum, our relationships, our marriages, that we would orient our homes to align with your plan and what you've instructed us in, that we would take delight in your plan, that we would not resent it, that we would not turn to other ideologies, which do not actually 
fit or accord with your plan. I pray that we would seek to honor you knowing that there are spiritual beings watching and observing, that we would be truly people that are showcases of your wonder and your glory for the angelic and demonic realm that observe and see a company of the redeemed, an assembly of the children of God here in this place, and that when they look upon us, they would see people who are through and through Christian and people who have sought to orient every aspect of their lives according to you and your word and your authority. For we know that this brings you honor and it brings you glory even from these spirit beings, the angels and demons that look on when they say, wow, those people actually believe you. Those people there at PBC actually trying to honor you. That salvation that you have given them must be something. Lord, I pray that you would help us. I pray for those who are not saved, that they would come to know Jesus as their Savior. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.